Welcome to Rise, Healing from Childhood Sexual Abuse Podcast. I am your host, Jessica Heil, registered psychologist and DBT certified clinician. I am also a childhood sexual abuse survivor. In this podcast, I will offer information about childhood sexual abuse in order to provide you with knowledge on this difficult topic, as well as provide you with strategies and tips that you can access now in order to begin moving from surviving to thriving. Welcome back. In today's episode, I'm going to go through the history of childhood sexual abuse and the history of how the public and professionals generally thought about sexual abuse as well as where we are at today. And the reason why I thought this would be an important episode to record is because we need to know a little bit about how childhood sexual abuse was viewed and how it was responded to in the past to understand why there is the, I don't know, the feelings that there are today towards um, things like disclosing abuse and towards how survivors fear they might be responded to. A lot of that is really connected to how they were responded to in the past and some of those discriminations and taboos still exist today. So let's go through this and hopefully this will shed a little bit of light to you as to why you might have some of your own feelings when it comes to things like getting treatment or disclosing to people that abuse has occurred to you. Um, Where to start? So I guess, well, really, childhood sexual abuse is a tale as old as time. It has been reported in different ancient texts going back as late as, um, or as early, I guess, as ancient Greek and Roman civilizations. So for example, there are different writings on uh, people being aware or having um, having seen children being abused or, or raped um, going back into times as, as early as like the first century AD. There are many references to sexual activities with children in the Bible. So this is going back even further because lots of different references are made in the Old Testament which is all written before the first year AD. And lots of references in various texts throughout the Middle Ages, where it is written that children were often apprenticed to work, or sometimes they were offered to convents and monasteries. And in those types of environments, they were often abused by the people who were supposed to be looking after them. There's been abuse also documented in the 15th and 16th century in Europe in elite households that oftentimes there was abuse of children. Children were subjected to sexual experiences in very young years and then going into their early teenage years as well. And that it was just something that was kind of a, a common experience that would sometimes occur. And lots of documentation of children being married off early during their teenage years uh, throughout time. And that unfortunately still exists today in some countries. And then lots of documentation about how the Catholic Church historically engaged in abusive practices towards children, both physically as well as sexually, and has continued to engage in some of those practices up until the present. There's been more and more cases now that have been exposed to the public of people in authority positions in the church who have been abusing children. So that's been happening for a long time and still definitely is occurring. Um, 
this one I find is just like, ooh, just makes me shake my head. In It was in 1875 that the age of consent in Great Britain was raised to 13 years old. Prior to 1875 in Great Britain, the age of consent was 10 years old for children to engage in sexual practices with an adult. Like, oh, it's so gross to think about. And then raising it to, you know, the ripe old age of 13, like, oh my God, so early, so young for children to be given consent. It's just disgusting to think about, but that's how it was. Um, In the Victorian age, any reports of sexual abuse, generally when those reports were being made, there was this background worldview that people were living by, which associated that uh, people with strong morals generally were thought of to be people who were from like the bourgeois type of status. So bourgeois would be like middle class and up. And it was assumed that anybody that was middle class and up must have strong moral standards and therefore wouldn't engage in things like childhood sexual abuse or incest. And therefore, if anyone was ever abusing a child, it must be that those people were from... Uh, lower socioeconomic statuses uh, groups. So things like people who were in poverty were the ones who were theorized to be committing acts such as incest and other forms of sexual abuse. In around the mid-18th century, and then going all the way until the mid-19th century, we see the emergence of what will probably be a familiar name to most of you, Sigmund Freud, who was born 1856, died in 1939. Freud is considered the father of psychotherapy and is the developer of psychoanalysis, which was a form of therapy that was very, very popular in the early 1900s. This, I find this so interesting. So Freud actually had some research that came out in the late 18th century. So in 1896, he wrote a paper that was called The Etiology of Hysteria. And in this paper, he unveiled his seduction theory, which hypothesized that childhood sexual abuse was frequently the cause of mental illness in adults. He had done research on his own patients and had found that uh, the, like many, many, many women who were experiencing what back then was called hysteria which hysteria is a term that historically has been used to describe when a person is disproportionately emotional for the situation they're experiencing. So that's hysteria. He had observed that hysteria appeared to be linked to these women who had these uh, disclosures of childhood sexual abuse. So he noticed that when people had experienced childhood sexual abuse, oftentimes they went on to experience these different mental health symptoms, such as hysteria, uh, also things like obsessions, chronic paranoia, and what he termed just other functional neuroses. So this was actually, like, this is quite mind-blowing that somebody as big as Freud was able to identify that this was going on, that sexual abuse was as prevalent as it is. And this paper really was a big thing back then, and there's lots of discussion about it. Now, unfortunately, it um, was not received well. And that uh, what, what ended up happening is that there was a lot of different researchers prior to that paper, as well as after that paper, who disagreed with Freud. 
and had essentially said, essentially, this was not possible, that it's not possible that sexual abuse could be nearly as prevalent as he was saying it was, and that um, these women must be making it up, they must be lying. So for example, there is um, another famous, uh, this, this person was a pathologist, a French pathologist. His name was, oh my goodness, I'm going to butcher this, uh, the pronunciation of this, but I, I, I believe it's Browardell, so B-R-O-U-A-R-D-E-L, Browardell, who he actually had written a book that stated that 60 to 80% of sexual abuse complaints were false accusations which had their source in hysteria, attention-seeking, genital hallucinations, and the extreme suggestibility of children to panicky questions by their mothers. So this is what Freud was up against. He had all of this information about what his patients were saying and had come to this conclusion that lots of mental health problems were correlated with prior experiences of being abused, but he had all these other people, all these very well-known uh, doctors and, and whatnot that were saying, no, that can't possibly be the case. Now, in 18, when he wrote this paper in 1896, he was pretty, this is when, this was the beginning of Freud's career. He was still pretty new to the field. And so, unfortunately, what he ended up doing was he took back what he had said, his research. And um, instead, he decided, he, he, he asserted that his patient's accounts of childhood sexual abuse were actually fictitious and must have been early childhood autoerotic fantasies. And that uh, he concluded that these women had failed to resolve the Oedipal situation. So the Oedipus complex is a theory that Freud developed in 1899 that suggests that young children experience an attachment to the parent of the opposite sex. And this is accompanied by a lot of envy and hostile feelings towards the parent of the same sex and that the stage is theorized to end when the child eventually identifies with the parent of the same sex. So this is the Oedipus complex. It's a theory. Um, it really has now been debunked. I mean, very few clinical researchers in the world or practitioners believe this anymore. This is not, you know, this is not believed to be uh, a true theory, but back then that's what he came up with. And it was largely, this, this complex was developed largely as a response to the negative reception that he had towards his research on the prevalence of childhood sexual abuse. So he decided to come out saying that, that this, is, this must be because these women have not um, resolved their Oedipus complex yet, and therefore they have all these fantasies and... Um, or they're lying about their experiences of childhood sexual abuse, which is really, really quite a, a sad thing for the psychological community and for the public at large, that that is what he decided to do. Because Freud really had the opportunity to change the discourse on childhood sexual abuse by continuing to endorse his findings. And unfortunately, because it was considered so taboo back then, um, and he was so worried about his reputation by ignoring his own research and concluding these women were lying or, you know, they're having some sort of fantasies. What it ended up doing is it pushed this research back into the background and people wouldn't touch it for many, many years after that 
because they were afraid of their own reputations or, you know, they didn't want to challenge this, this discourse that, um, that Freud had endorsed and that others had endorsed that um, there was no connection between childhood sexual abuse and mental health concerns. And, um, you know, had he stuck to his message and said, no, this really is what's going on. Who knows? It's possible that we could have found ourselves in a position where there was a lot more research and funding and, you know, just um, validation towards survivors a lot earlier on. Instead, because this was the direction that Freud and others took, the awareness of childhood sexual abuse really got pushed um, into, like, well into the late 19. 19- hundreds before it was really taken seriously again. So it's really too bad for, um, well, for the public at large, but also for very much for survivors. So why did Freud choose to abandon his research? Uh, Beyond the fact that, you know, obviously it was, you know, controversial at the time and he was getting this negative reception. He actually ended up being convinced by other people that it must have been wrong. Because the thought had been, if childhood sexual abuse was as prevalent as these women were indicating, that it meant that a significant amount of men who were really considered to be gentlemen were actually capable of abuse. And this was just absolutely unthinkable to the general public and unthinkable to the researchers. It meant that anybody could be capable of abuse. And the world was just not yet at a place where they were able and willing to consider that. And we can continue to see that denial throughout the early 19th, um, or sorry, the early 20th century. So in the early 1900s, so kind of same era here as Freud, there was evidence of common outbreaks of venereal disease in children in group homes and also in children's wards and hospitals. And this was written about in a document called the Royal Commission on Venereal Diseases Final Report, which was written in 1969. And so obviously, I mean, at that point, if children are getting venereal diseases, clearly they're getting it from somewhere. And, you know, now in, you know, the, the, the time of life that we're in, we all are very aware that if there's a contraction of a venereal disease, it means that somebody must have had some sort of sexual contact in order to have um, received this disease. Back then, however, the medical profession tended to explain this idea of venereal disease transmission through saying that it was due to something called fomite transmission. Fomite is uh, inanimate objects that carry disease. So things like toilets. They assumed that all these children were getting venereal diseases because of dirty toilets, essentially. And they often refer to the transmission of these diseases as accidental or innocent transmission. So again, we see that theme that it's apparently unthinkable for abuse to be going on within institutions by these people that children are supposed to be able to trust. After the venereal diseases final report was released, many free clinics were set up to treat venereal disease because it became more common knowledge of how prevalent these diseases were. And because these clinics were set up, it meant that doctors were dealing with these diseases in greater volume, and therefore they were able to see a broader demographic of the public. So no longer just children who were in different wards and group homes. Instead, they saw demographics ranging from people in poverty all the way up to wealthy folks. 
And in the 1920s, doctors noted that they were treating a lot of cases of gonorrhea uh, in children. And they noticed that many of these cases were with children who were living with their parents. And what's really interesting is that the explanations doctors gave for the avenue of transmission varied largely based on socioeconomic status of the patient. Doctors would suggest that for, or they would say that for well-off patients, wealthier patients, transmission was generally blamed on, this is so awful, it was blamed on governesses and servants. So sexual abuse started to become acknowledged that doctors would say, well, obviously something has happened here, but it was never blamed on the parents. It was blamed on the help. And for less well-off patients, poor hygiene and shared toilet seats were often blamed as sources of infection. So back to that fomite transmission. And this is shocking. It was actually not until the 1980s and 1990s that doctors began looking at venereal disease in children as an indication that they're being abused. Like that's, oh my gosh, it's like so long, right? It's like decades of just being in denial about the fact that children were being abused. Like it's just, oh, it shocks me to say that. Um, let's see. So then in cases where, so coming back early 1900s, in the cases where sexual abuse was acknowledged, Medical accounts tended to minimize the possibility that the abuse was related to the perpetrator's own sexual gratification. So even if it was acknowledged, people were not at a point of saying that it's because the person was being, you know, was being a perpetrator, that they were, they had this desire to have these sexual activities with a child. Instead, one really common theory suggested that people engaged in sexual practices with children because they held on to an illogical belief that having intercourse with a virgin produced a cure for venereal disease. This was called the infectionist theory. And so in that theory, it said, look, people who are engaging in sexual practices with children, they're not perverts. They, They don't have any sexual satisfaction from raping a child. It's because they just hold on to this illogical belief that this would cure their venereal disease. So lots and lots of denial about why people would commit these offenses against children. This belief disappeared by the 1940s, but the belief in fomite transmission, so things like toilet transmission, was still alive and well for a long time after the 40s. Now, it is possible that doctors were in denial about the cause of venereal disease in children due to feeling powerless to prevent abuse if they did disclose that they thought that a child was being abused by, say, like a family member. In the early 20th century, fathers had absolute power over their children and could easily remove them from treatment and refuse medical examinations if they wanted to. And there wasn't anything set up yet, such as child welfare. So if a doctor had accused, say, a father of molesting the child, then the doctor would just simply never see that um, that child again. It would just, you know, father would take them away and that was it. So it's thought that many doctors might have had a sense of what was going on, but they felt just really kind of defeated and hopeless at saying anything, like kind of like, what's the point? Because nothing would actually change and it might make it worse for the child. Uh, in the rare occurrence where sexual abuse was acknowledged and blame was 
um, discussed, such as potentially things going to court over the fact that a child was raped, then oftentimes the blame got put onto the victim rather than the perpetrator. For example, there was a court case in the 1910s where an 11-year-old girl was brought before court for having sex with a 60-year-old man. And uh, according to these documents, the man had introduced himself to this girl in the park and um, through just various interactions, sexual intercourse eventually happened. And the man was acquitted as the jury refused to send him to prison for, quote unquote, a girl like that. Yeah. So lots of victim blaming was occurring as well. Now, back to the 1930s, we start to see a slight paradigm shift where sexual abuse began to be acknowledged a bit more. Again, we're, we're now having doctors saying, okay, like, obviously, you know, this stuff is sometimes happening, um, especially when they couldn't ignore the evidence of things like gonorrhea anymore because they're seeing that in their clinic. However, at that point then, the paradigm shifted to assuming that if children were being molested and it wasn't because you know, that maybe these these men were holding on to these um, illogical beliefs that having sex with a virgin would cure them from their venereal diseases. So if we move past that point, and then we have these, um, uh, the general public is believing that maybe child abuse is actually occurring, and maybe it is indeed pathological, it was then assumed that any child molesters must be not like other men. They must have something wrong with them. It means that this is being committed by monsters and people who are just not like any other men. So we're moving in the right direction, but we're still not acknowledging that this stuff is happening in everyday households. And there's people such as J. Edgar Hoover who kind of perpetuate that belief. He was the FBI director from 1924 to 1972, and he called for a war on the, quote, sex fiend who has become a sinister threat to American childhood and womanhood, end quote. And this really contributed to a national panic about sex crimes and led to a political roundup of who um, people who were considered to be, quote, perverts. But these perverts were generally actually just minor offenders and gay men, which is just so awful. So we ended up with having scapegoats for people um, you know, who ended up being accused of child abuse, who actually were not the ones who were committing this abuse. So there's more political engagement and, you know, there's um, engagement of um, the law, but against the wrong people. So you can see, again, we're, we're trying to move in a better direction, but it's just causing more problems and causing harm to people who shouldn't have been harmed. In the 1940s, there's another paradigm shift where we see the beginnings of the stranger danger myth, which continued to conceal the predominance of sexual abuse within the family, which is generally where most of the abuse was occurring. Victims were relabeled as sex delinquents or as participating victims. And an example of this is a clinician named Carl Abraham, who was trained in psychoanalysis, which is the type of therapy that Freud had developed. He was very influenced by Freud, and he stated that something must be wrong with the victims since it was rarely reported that they fought back when being abused. And he also stated that, quote, the victim herself may also tempt the offender. We sometimes see the seductive inclination even in young girls in their being flirtatious, end quote. 
So still lots of victim blaming, still putting the um, the cause of the abuse on the child, not on the perpetrator. We see this with Loretta Bender, who is a famous American child psychiatrist, who was one of the first to research adult child sexual encounters. She wrote a paper in 1937, sorry, 1937 called The Reaction of Children to Sexual Relations with Adults. And she found that all the victims she interviewed were, quote, unusually attractive, end quote, children who made seductive gestures to the psychiatrists. And she referred to these children as sex delinquents and suggested that the children were the seducers rather than the seduced. So just going to pause in my um, historical recounting here and just say for anyone listening to all this, you can see why survivors of childhood sexual abuse have been so leery about coming out with disclosures towards what happened to them because this history is thick man like this is just you know lots of stuff going on here which makes it very very difficult to disclose and be taken you know seriously and being validated and um i mean yes 1937 was it's a while ago but i mean we're talking about less than a century ago so this stuff is still you know it's it's still affecting us today so just keep that in mind. Um, okay, but back into this. In 1953, Alfred Kinsey, who was a famous American sexologist, completed research on female sexual behavior. And he found that 25% of all girls under the age of 14 reported having experienced some form of sexual abuse. And if you remember back from my first podcast, I talked about the different types of abuse. And if you recall, these include things like exposure, non-genital touching, genital touching, and penetration. So Kinsey noticed that um, if if we include all of those four types, that, um, yeah, 25% of, of girls under 14 had reported that they had been abused. That's a big, big number. In 1955, the novel Lolita was first published by Vladimir Nabokov, and this has this is a classic novel. It's very, very popular. Uh, many, many different um, publications of this book or many, many copies of the, the publication of the book have been released. And this book describes uh, a child who is 12 years old who tempts a man into a sexual act. So we see this uh, belief about children as being these seductresses continue to perpetuate our culture, including into pop culture, with the arisal of things like this book. Now, professional assumptions about child sexual abuse began to change in the 1960s, which is wonderful. So this is where we really start to see a little bit of a shift now away from victim blaming, victim shaming, and denial of the prevalence of abuse and more into reality of what's actually happening. So in the 60s, two federally funded studies commissioned, were commissioned to study the abuse. And these studies both showed that sexual abuse was very common. And it also indicated that abuse is generally from somebody that the child knows. It's not from a stranger. So this started to debunk that stranger danger myth. In 1968, 44 out of 50 of the U.S. states had enacted mandatory laws that required physicians to report cases of suspicious child abuse. So that's wonderful, right? We're starting to see that there is this mandate that abuse must be 
um, must be reported, which is wonderful. And then in 1971, this is super cool. This is where things really start to change. There is a person named Florence Rush. She is a social worker and feminist activist. And she gave a speech about child sexual abuse at the New York Radical Feminist Conference. And this was really the start of the revival of interest in childhood sexual abuse. In her speech, she identified that the long silence regarding sexual abuse has been largely due to institutionalized patriarchy. And she argued that almost all information on sexual abuse up to date had to be discarded since they were flawed and biased by this patriarchy. So go Florence. This was like just incredible for uh, survivors to hear. And it just really started this movement towards ensuring that survivors got the help that they needed and that perpetrators were, um, were charged and convicted. And, um, held responsible for the, the harm that they had caused. Feminists emerged as the warriors who would fight for the rhetoric around sexual abuse to change. There is a book called The Dialectic of Sex, which was written by a co-founder of the New York Radical Feminists. Her name is Shaluma Firestone, and she urged feminists to make the issue of sexual abuse part of their fight for rights and to, quote, think of children's liberation from male oppression as being linked to women's liberation, end quote. Back to Florence. Florence Rush wrote something called the Freudian cover-up theory around that same time frame, uh, so kind of 1971-ish um, around there. And this theory was incredibly influential at helping bring to the forefront the fact that Freud had ignored the evidence that his patients had been sexually abused as children. So finally, the truth is coming out and it's being acknowledged that, um, that what Freud had initially suggested, that sexual abuse is correlated with the later emergence of things like mental illness. This is finally just um, shed in the light that it needs to. And um, the fact that Freud covered this up is, is starting to be discussed. In 1974, there's the enactment in the states of the Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act, which was uh, something that made uh, legal action more prevalent when someone disclosed being abused. So it was possible to go after the perpetrators in a different way now and have it be just a little bit more successful of actually getting into the courts. In 1976, a new journal was launched, which was called Child Abuse and Neglect, and it became an important outlet for articles related to childhood sexual abuse. In 1977, an article called Incest, Sexual Abuse Begins at Home by Ellen Weber was written and this article showcased that childhood sexual abuse was common that it happens in every social economic and ethnic background and then in 1979 there is something called the national abuse coalition which was created and it created pressure in congress to create more sexual abuse laws by 1980 most americans reported that they had seen some kind of media coverage that indicated that childhood sexual abuse was a problem so it was no longer being ignored. Um, the vast majority of Americans were starting to recognize this now as being a concern. Around this time, Judith Herman comes on the scene. She is a Harvard professor of psychiatry and a now very famous researcher on trauma. And she wrote her first ever book on father-daughter incest in 1981. 
And she wrote this because she discovered during her medical residency that a large number of the women that she was treating had been abused through sexual abuse, um, oftentimes by their fathers. In 1980, this is the first time that post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD was mentioned in the DSM. The DSM is, um, it's, a, it's a book, it's called the Di Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Psychological and Psychiatric Disorders. This was um, the first time that the DSM actually mentioned PTSD. So this was a big, big thing. And childhood sexual abuse began to be associated with PTSD which was very, very helpful for getting treatment for child sexual abuse. Once the trauma model was adopted, many changes related to how sexual abuse was viewed by professionals in the public also changed. It increased acceptance of how common it is to uh, have experienced sexual abuse, as well as how harmful sexual abuse is. Also in 1980, this is where we first start to see Canada come on the scene and start to do something about sexual abuse as well. So in 1980, Parliament established a committee to look into sexual abuse. And the report of the Committee on Sexual Offenses Against Children and Youth was written, which confirmed that sexual abuse is common in Canada. It found that one out of two females and one out of three males have been victims of sexual abuse involving one of those four types of sexual abuse. So again, exposure, non-genital touching, genital touching, and penetration. It found that four out of 100 young females had disclosed being raped and that one out of four perpetrators were a family member or a person that the minor had trusted at the time. It found that nearly all perpetrators were males and one out of 100 were female. And so the federal government then implemented the recommendations from the report in 1988. And by implementing these recommendations, it made it easier to prosecute the perpetrators. Judith Herman, again, her second book was called Trauma and Recovery. It was written in 1992, and it is considered a classic piece of work. It's groundbreaking with regards to increasing the awareness of trauma. And it was in this book that she coined the term complex PTSD or CPTSD, and it included sexual abuse as a possible cause of CPTSD. CPTSD shares many of the same symptoms as general PTSD. However, it also includes problems with emotion regulation, self-worth, and interpersonal concerns such as difficulty trusting others and attachment concerns. It generally fits better for childhood sexual abuse survivors. And also in CPTSD, it includes, um, it's, it's typically due to having ongoing developmental trauma. So trauma that occurs more than one time, whereas PTSD is often from a single episode traumatic event. So CPTSD really does capture sexual abuse more often um, or just in a better way. So she's the first person, Judith Herman, to acknowledge this thing called CPTSD. But interestingly, so feminists actually pushed back at some research that was also starting to, um, well, that, that had been kind of in the undercurrent for some time now. Some research had showed that sexual abuse doesn't cause any major trauma when it's occurring that it actually causes, the trauma is after the fact. And feminists push back at this, which is just, it's, it's really interesting to think about it, especially in light of the fact that now today, it's more acknowledged that the trauma from sexual abuse does generally occur after the fact. 
So at the time, feminists were pushing back at this because they were so worried that not having sexual abuse be considered traumatic at the time would lead to a regression in progress with awareness in the public, as well as lead to more victim blaming. And, and that makes sense. Like they had fought so hard to have sexual abuse be acknowledged as a problem. And they had really won a battle by having it be acknowledged that it can create PTSD, that they just didn't want to go backwards. In retrospect, this is a bit problematic given that most survivors of sexual abuse do report that the abuse was not traumatic at the time, that it is the after effects of guilt and shame and, you know, realizing at a later age that this was um, abuse, right? Like it's that type of thing that often causes a lot of the symptoms that survivors experience. I talk about that in previous podcasts quite a bit. Um, so by hearing, for for survivors to hear that it's supposed to be traumatic to like at the time of abuse, this has caused survivors a lot of guilt and shame where they think, oh, like if my abuse, you know, it wasn't traumatic to me at the time. And so what does that say about me? What does that mean about me? So it is problematic. And yet I, I totally get why they did it at the time. Um, I don't know that it could have been any other way, given the fight that they were experiencing to get people to really take sexual abuse seriously. This concept of abuse not being traumatic at the time is really addressed in Susan A. Clancy's book, The Trauma Myth. If you haven't read that book yet, I do strongly suggest that you do because it really is just a wonderful resource for anyone who is a survivor. So as there was an increase in awareness of sexual abuse as a problem, funding increased to develop different treatments and to help different you know, people who are, are survivors just make sure that they were actually getting the resources that they deserved. And now there's lots of different evidence-based treatments to treat the symptoms related to childhood sexual abuse, to treat things like CPTSD. And these treatments include EMDR, as well as ART, which stands for Accelerated Resolution Therapy, and Internal Family Systems Therapy, and all sorts of different ones. So that's been just a, a lovely outcome that now there's just lots of treatments that survivors can look towards. And recently, there's been a trend towards increasing public education regarding how to prevent child sexual abuse. So I love that, because if we can get ahead of the problem, I think we really have a very good chance of just helping, you know, future people um, hopefully not have to go through the things that that we um, we already have had to go through. So I think that's all I have to say today. I know that was a lot of information today and um, uh, just a lot to digest. So as always, just take care of yourselves and thanks for listening. And I look forward to having you back for next episode. Thanks so much for listening. If you found today's episode helpful, please go ahead and leave me a review. And you can also follow the show so that you don't miss out on any future episodes. For more information about me, you can check out my website, www.innersolutions.ca.